If you'd like to follow in your Bibles, turn to John chapter 6. While I was in grade school, each year after Thanksgiving, my brother and I would get the Sears catalog and quickly turn to the pages with the toys. And we'd look them over meticulously and choose the one toy we most want. We would share that with our parents, with every relative we had. And then on Sunday morning, we'd see if it was there. So when I was in third grade, I wanted the farm set. And so Christmas morning, I rushed downstairs. I saw dozens of presents under the tree, and I looked for the biggest one. Went over to it and had my name on it. I tore open the wrapping paper, and there it was, the farm set. Now, the farm set was the best. You had a barn, and you could raise the hay up into the loft. It had every animal you can imagine with fencing. You can even put crops in there, tractor with all the equipment. I loved that gift. I don't know if I ever thanked anyone for it because I was so enraptured by that present. Twenty years later, I was given another gift. It was a little box of note cards. Though the gift wasn't as good as the farm set, the gift told me something about the gift giver, that she was thoughtful, caring, generous, and sweet. I fell in love with the gift giver, and I married her. Why do we want Jesus? Is it because the gifts he gives or because of who he is? Do we love his gifts or do we love the gift giver more? Let's pray. Father, let us examine our hearts this morning. Let us be drawn to you. Let us see the wonders of what you, you offer to us. And then behold you for who you are and become enraptured with you. Amen. Today's passage where Jesus does a miracle with the bread gives us, shows us a gift that Jesus gives. And then it shows us the crowd's response and they're a little bit more like me in third grade. And then the disciples, the twelve, their response is a little more like mine 20 years later. So what we're going to do is look at the gift, the response of the crowd, and then the response of the disciples. We look at the gift. Jesus' itinerary brought him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now word had gotten out that he was going there, and many people who had seen miracles of Jesus healing the sick passed the word, and so thousands made their way to Jesus' presence. The Gospel of Mark informs us that it's evening, and so when Jesus looks out at the crowd, he realizes that they need to eat. Now, he knows exactly what he's going to do and how he's going to do it, but he's still training his disciples, so he first asks Philip, we see in verse 5, where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? 
Now he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, we might expect Philip, who had seen a number of Jesus' miracles, to say, well, this shouldn't be a problem. Uh, Jesus, you seem to be able to fix everything. But somehow Philip is like many of us, where we see Christ work in our lives, we see him sovereignly work everything out, and then the next time we face a similar event, we're still apoplectic over what's going to happen and can Jesus really intervene and and be there. But so Philip's response is, verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Philip is a bit cerebral. He came to Jesus because he saw the scriptures fulfilled by Jesus. And so he's thinking, what can we do? How can we do this? And he says, well, three, 200 denarii, which is a denarii one, is one day's labor. So it's probably thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000. He says it's not enough to buy bread. And you can see him calculating. We don't have that much money. What, what, uh, what market would have that much bread? And we don't even have the donkeys to bring the bread. If we had it, uh, this is impossible. It can't be done. We don't have the resources for it. Now, Andrew, Andrew was a very, he was a people person. He was always among the people. He had been among the people and he had met a little boy who had some food. So verses 8 and 9, we read, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish But what are they for so many? He says, I checked out all the resources that we have on hand here, and all I've come up with is five loaves of bread and two fish. This is impossible. Now, many have preached sermons about the little boy and how that boy's gift, though it was small, was taken by Jesus and multiplied. And it's a reminder to us that we each are given gifts. And we may not think much of those gifts. But when we give them to Jesus, when we follow Jesus, He can multiply into life after life after life. They can be touched by us sharing our gifts. But in and of itself, It wasn't enough. Needed Jesus' intervention. Essentially, it sets the stage for the fact that the impossible has to happen for the people to be fed. So Jesus, knowing what he's going to do earlier, now he says, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, When he'd given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated and they took the fish as much as they wanted. So it says here that there were 5,000 men. That's not counting the women and children. So we can imagine the crowd's 10, 15,000, about this crowd that it would take to fill 
the old Boston Garden. And every one of them is fed from these five loaves. But not only are they, as everyone fed, they didn't get little pieces, little morsels of food. It says they got as much as they wanted. It was an all-you-can-eat buffet. Incredible miracle. And we continue reading. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So not only did Jesus feed the 5,000, not only did everyone eat as much as they wanted, there was still more left over. It's a reminder of Jesus can do abundantly beyond what we think or ask. He is a tremendous provider. He gives in abundance. But the 12 baskets most likely have significance. Some commentators have looked at that 12 number and say this represents the 12 tribes of Israel. And what John is trying to get across is that Jesus Christ has, is offering everything that can fulfill every Jewish person, every tribe of Israel. Others look at the 12 and see the number of disciples. And they see the disciples gathering up those loaves and seeing that the disciples are going to be commissioned to take what Jesus provides, each one of them, and bring it out into the world and offer it to them. Perhaps both are true, but what we do understand is that what Jesus does is more than feed 5,000 plus people. Jesus is offering a sign that points to him. Now, some people try to explain this miracle away naturally. I've heard some say that, well, what Jesus actually did was a little bit more like communion, where you take just a little tiny bit of bread and distribute it. Of course, that doesn't explain why there are 12 baskets full of bread left over. I heard one preacher, I heard his sermon, where he said, well, the miracle was the boy. When the boy opened up his lunch and shared his lunch, that moved everybody in the crowd to open up and share their lunch. That doesn't really explain why they now want to make Jesus king. I might, might want to make the boy king, but it uh, doesn't fit. What Jesus did is a miracle beyond possibilities. And it pointed to him that he is the bread of life. We're going to look at the meaning of that more fully in two weeks, but for today we see that Jesus' purpose was much bigger than feeding people for one day. It was about pointing to him who he is as the Messiah, as the King of Kings, as the bread of life. So, we now look at the, the crowd's response. Their immediate response, having eaten the bread, was to declare that Jesus was the prophet that Moses had 
pointed to and prophesied. Verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. The miracle awakened them to the reality that Jesus was beyond ordinary. He was extraordinary. They had gathered because they had seen him do miracles, healing sick person after sick person. Now they saw him feed this massive crowd with so little. And each person had personally experienced a miracle. And so they said, he must be a prophet like Moses. And it's a reference to Deuteronomy 18.18 where Moses prophesies, God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I can command them. And so they're putting one and one together. Moses said there's a prophet like him coming. Moses fed the people bread in the wilderness. Jesus just fed us bread. He must be this prophet. And so they began to imagine what if they had Jesus like their forefathers had Moses. They had him there every day leading the people. And so we read in verse 15 that they want to make Jesus king. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So they want to make him king. Jesus doesn't want to be made king. And so we, we wonder why, because Jesus was the Messiah. He was to come and sit on the throne of David forever. People want to make him king. So why didn't Jesus give himself over to them? And it's because Jesus came first to provide the spiritual kingdom. It's on his second coming that he is going to provide the physical kingdom where he rules and reigns. He first needs to prepare the hearts and lives of people. And so he comes offering himself as the bread of life, giving up his life so that we could have a relationship with God. God could do the transforming work in our lives so that we do kingdom work among those we live with. That was the furthest from the minds of the crowd. We see toward the end of the chapter in verse 66. After Jesus had talked about himself being the bread of life, it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now the term disciples here is a general word. It's not referring to those who had been walking with and living with Jesus. It means to be a student, to be under the teaching of someone following them. And so this is a reference to, to the crowd who had sat under Jesus' teaching. Uh, they appeared to want to follow him, but something happened in Jesus' conversation. He pointed out that he was, didn't come to be like Moses, 
And they asked him to be. Well, you know, Moses fed us the manna in the wilderness and you're talking about being the bread of life. Uh, what are you talking about? And then Jesus, in his conversation, confuses them. They don't get it. And they just walk away from Jesus. Why would they abandon them? Why would they abandon Jesus? Well, Jesus points it out in verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, speaking to the crowd, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They fell in love with the gift, not with Jesus. They wanted the physical things that Jesus offered, the healing touch, the food, But Jesus was there ultimately offering them the spiritual dimension, eternal life. And they balk at this because Jesus wasn't promising to give them what they wanted. As king, he could do all sorts of miracles for them. That's what they wanted. They wanted to Jesus to do their will, provide what they wanted. And when he didn't promise to do that, they walked. Are we like them in any respect? Are our Christian lives all about what Jesus gives us? And he gives us out of his love, he gives us so much. He gives us purpose, significance, love, peace, joy, hope, eternity. These are phenomenal gifts. But are we enamored just with those? Or do they draw us to see who Jesus Christ is? Does the gospel become the center that draws us to live out of that intimate relationship with Jesus Christ? Or are we demanding more? Do we become bothered and upset when uh, we don't experience the peace, we lose some hope, Let's love the gift giver, not the gifts. And the disciples were different from the crowd. They experienced the same miracle they'd seen, the other miracles as well, and they became a part of it. Uh, they said there was no solution, no possibility of feeding this many people. But they followed Jesus. They organized the seating plan. Most likely we were involved in distributing the food, and then they cleaned up afterwards. They heard Jesus' challenge to the people. They were as confused as the crowd was by Jesus' words. They saw everyone else walk away. And so Jesus, in verses 67 and 68, says to them, Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The difference between the crowd and the twelve is that the crowd wanted the physical blessings. The disciples wanted the eternal life. All the blessings that offered, but essentially eternal life, as is said in John 17, 3, eternal life is to know God 
and Jesus Christ whom you sent. It's life eternal. Life is a living relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's an intimate relationship with Christ himself. And Jesus offers that now and for eternity. They were saying, Jesus, we want you, not just your gifts. And of course, they got to see more. They got to understand the death of Christ, the sacrifice he would give for us, for them. The love poured out on the cross so that we could have that relationship with him. And that's what drove their lives. John says it later in his letter in, in the fourth chapter. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, they came to love God more deeply and more deeply as they focused on how much he loved them, how much Christ paid on the cross for us, that he was the propitiation for our sins. And that word propitiation means that God is satisfied with the death of Christ. He, God, wrath and justice were satisfied as they were poured out on Christ instead of us so we could have that relationship with him. Tim Keller uh, cites a, a film called Three Seasons to give a picture of what, what this means. It's about, it takes place in Vietnam, and it's about a, a Lam, who's a prostitute, and Hai, who's a rickshaw driver. Now, both of them have unfulfilled desires. Han longs to be with Lan. He, he loves her, but she'll have no part of him. Lan envisions the life of the people she sees in the elegant hotels where she services her customers. Well, Han wins a rickshaw race and gets a grand prize, and it's enough money for him to begin his, his life anew. <clears throat> but instead, he spends it all on one thing. He rents a room at one of these elegant hotels, and then he pays for Lan's services. Everyone watching is expecting a steamy love scene, and that's exactly what Lan is expecting that what will happen to her is what's happened time and time again. But when she gets there, Han simply says to her, I don't want to sleep with you. I'm not going to sleep with you. And the reviewer writes at that point, Han has only purchased her a place as an actual guest in the normal world which she dreams of joining. And he asks only permission to watch her fall asleep. Slowly, comfortably, she falls asleep. And by the morning, he's gone. Having demanded nothing of her but the chance to fulfill her desires of belonging. But something snaps in her. She finds she can't go back to her old job of prostitution. 
having experienced someone's love for the first time, someone who used his power to serve her rather than use her. She gets a new sense of her own dignity. She's not the same person. She is transformed by the transforming grace of selflessness. Secular author sees that. It's what we see in the story of Jesus who gave of himself the greatest gifts. We need to allow that to transform us, to fall in love with the gift giver and to let him transform our lives. Do you know the gift of eternal life? The love of Christ and how much he has sacrificed for you. If you know it, live out of it. Let those gospel truths be at the core of your life. Let it keep you connected to Christ so that you live your life out of the love of Christ. If you do not know eternal life, it is offered to you today. Know the love of Christ, how much he wants a relationship with you. Mother Teresa writes this. She's using Jesus' voice in it. But she says, as though Christ would say it, I know especially your need for love, how you thirst to be accepted, appreciated, loved, and cherished, how often you've thirsted in vain seeking that love outside of me. I, who its source, striving to find fill the emptiness inside you with passing pleasures, often with an even greater emptiness of sin. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. The words of Jesus. I will satisfy your desire for love beyond your dreams. Do you thirst to be appreciated and cherished? I cherish you more than you can imagine, to the point leaving heaven for you and dying on a cross to make you one with me. I am myself the answer to your deepest desires. Yes, I thirst for you. That's the only way to describe my love for you. I thirst to love you and to be loved by you. That's how precious you are to me. Receive that gift of love and fall into a love relationship with him. Our Father, for those of us who have been exposed to the gospel day after day after day, may we never ever be desensitized to it because we've heard it so often. May it enrich our lives. May it move our lives. And for those who have not experienced that, Lord, may your spirit right now be the voice of Christ, showing them how much he offers and how much he paid so he could offer it to them. Bring them to the foot of the cross and see that Jesus is the Savior they need And once they receive that gift, may they 
fall in love with the gift giver. Amen.